Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to Hi Jinx with me, Jinx Monsoon. Today, my guest is my friend, Charles Bush. And when I say my friend, Charles Bush, I'm taking liberty here because, yes, yes, Charles is my friend, but Charles is also a huge inspiration to me, one of the one of the early inspirations to me in my work as a drag queen. Um, Charles Bush took drag into the theatrical world and into the film world in a way that few people had done before Charles Bush did it. And today we're going to talk all about that. Plus lots of other things because it's hijinks, you know, and I ramble. So buckle up, hunker down, and sink your teeth into some brand new hijinks. M. Oh. M. Mom. everyone, I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to Hi Jinx, a podcast where I, an internationally tolerated drag superstar, get to interview compelling and fascinating people about how they became who they are and why they do what they do. Today, we are joined by actor, actress, screenwriter, playwright, and drag queen, Charles Bush. Uh, Joseph, you left off director. Director. Hi, Charles. Hi, Jinx. <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing fine now that I I can hear your voice. Wait, did I did I make that up? Were you uh did you direct um any of your films or am I just conflating things? Am I just making that up in my head? No, no, you're <laughs> right, actually. No, no, no. Okay. I, I directed um uh, well, this is, I've just directed my third movie that's um, just going to be released, uh, actually. Oh, wow. In, in about a week, yes. <laughs> Charles, you are a living legend in so many circles. Um, you're <laughs> a constant inspiration to um, Dela and I in our pursuits of our own endeavors. Um <sighs> I don't even know where to start. Okay, so you are a drag performer, but you are also um, very well known for films that you wrote, acted in. Um, (laughs) You played female characters, so not any wink or nod to the fact that you were um, in drag for the role. These characters were just female characters that you played to a T. Um, my first introduction to you was the film Die, Mommy, Die. So if we may, can we start there? How did Die, Mo- Die Mommy, Die come to be? <laughs> well, let's see here. Um, I I was doing, I, I was about to shoot the movie of Psycho Beach Party, which was also based on a play of mine. I was going to LA, yes. based in New York. And um, my director, Ken Elliott, who had directed all of my early plays, including Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, et cetera, <laughs> he had moved to L.A. and um, was, wanted to break into TV directing. And so he um, he suggested, since I was going to be in L.A. making this movie, what if we did a play at the same time in L.A.? It might be a good showcase for, for his directing. And I thought, well, you know, I'm, they only need me for about 10 days in this movie. We could do a play at the same time. <laughs> Like a true, like a true fucking, like, 
a show person, you know, like we can cram more things in. Yeah, I can do a gig it. right after the gig and during the gig. Yeah. That's how we think. Yeah. I'm sure it'll, it'll never conflict when they need me on the set <laughs> and opening night, which is exactly what happened. And the first performance that we had, I was stuck way out in Santa Clarita and, uh, <laughs> And I had a, we had to cancel actually the first three performances because I was stuck, you know, so far away, and that was pretty pretty awful. But anyway, then it worked out. So so the thing was, so I the play that I that I wrote for us to do in L.A. was Die, Mommy, Die, and um, while I was shooting, while I was in L.A. doing the play, I met these uh, film producers, and uh, and they wanted to work with me on some other kind of project, a book that they had adapted that that they bought that they wanted me to adapt and that didn't work out. And I said, well, you just make a movie of the play I'm doing. And so, uh, <laughs> and so that's what happened. And it was really fast too. Cause you know, most, you know, even the smallest indie movie can take years to get them yeah. together, get everybody together. And, and this was like, it was like, we were making a movie at monogram studios in 1940. I mean, this was fast, you know, between them seeing the movie and the, the cameras rolling might've been six months. Wow. So do, um, uh, so, oh my gosh, there's just so much I want to like peel away in what you just said. But um, I think I'll start with, uh, are most of your films based on plays or was that just kind of, was that something you were doing for a while where you'd write a play, get some life out of it in live entertainment and then try to adapt it for a film or did that just kind of happen on its own? Well, each one's a bit different. The, the first movie uh, that, that uh, based on my own work uh, mm -hmm. that I was in was Psycho Beach Party. And that had been a play in New York. And then my, my much missed um, late manager, Jeff Melnick, thought it should be a movie. And I didn't really get it. I thought it was so such a theater piece that I, I didn't see how it could be a movie. But he was... <laughs> pursuing it and it took him about eight years and then it all came together and we we made so that was a strict adaptation of play and i told you about die mommy die mm -hmm. and then the other movies um where uh, we made a movie that was kind of one of my my lost films uh <laughs> a very serious person and that carl andrist uh, and i wrote specifically to be a movie and my friend daryl roth produced it and and we did that and very few people saw it, but, but we had a good time making it. And then this new movie, The Sixth Reel, uh, that, that was just during COVID. Um, uh, Carl and I, and we were, just, he's in Connecticut and I was in New York and we, over Skype, we wrote this zany caper movie. And, uh, and we were able to find um, financing very quick for it and, and, and made the movie at the height of the pandemic uh, when there wasn't even a vaccine. And it's yeah. kind of amazing that um, the 80 people involved with cast and crew, nobody got sick. But, but we were doing cra crazy kind of, uh, you know, stringent uh, COVID protocols. Uh, Tim Daly is my leading man in the, in the movie. And, and it was, it, it was kind of kooky that the first day that he was on the set, we had to get into bed. And, uh, <laughs> and so we were double masked sitting on the bed you know, going over the scene, then we took off our masks and got got under the covers, <laughs> and then cut. We put our masks on again. I mean, it made no no sense at all. But when you're in bed with Tim Daly, you know, you don't really care about such details. <laughs> um. So, uh, Dale and I did a very similar thing when uh, we produced the. The holiday film during the pandemic and what it was is just a lot of artists who were really going ca with cabin fever going stir crazy at home and w we all came together and agreed to like quarantining and those stringent rules because we were just so bored not creating anything for months on end so it sounds like a similar uh, a similar experience. Um, and actually, you know, um, I hate to, to uh, exploit a terrible situation, but I, I will. And, <laughs> Listen, drag queens, if there's anything drag queens know how to do, it's how to turn tragedy into, um, I don't know. <laughs> what was, what'd you say? 
Triumph. Triumph. That's a per I was looking for an alliteration and I couldn't find it. And of course you had it locked and loaded. Um <laughs> You were able because because it was exactly what you were saying. Um we were able to get in our movie all these people who were in Broadway shows and which were now shuttered and they mm -hmm. could in our movies. We have a whole, you know, gal galaxy of uh Tony Award winners and nominees and and so we were very lucky that there was a, a pandemic so we could get them. <laughs> you know, Otherwise, they, um, wouldn't, they wouldn't have uh, taken my phone call. <laughs> um, I want to, I mean, I, I want to talk about Die, Mommy, Die and Psycho Beach Party a little bit more, but we'll Thanks. circle back around. Um, those were just my burning questions right off the top. But let's start a little further back. When... Um, have you always known that you wanted a career in um, entertainment? Because you pretty much behave like, I mean, if anyone's seen Sunset Boulevard, you, you behave like a tolerable Norma Desmond, like a sustainable, De a sustain sustainable Norma. It's just, there's something in your DNA. Your book is called Leading Lady for a Reason. <laughs> like... Yes, I, I guess I was sort of born with the grand manner. <laughs> you know, you know, I'm also kind of a, a good gal at the same time. Yeah, uh, you you've know. got you got a little bit of you got a little bit of Anne Margaret. You got a little bit of. Um, uh, uh, I'm stuttering trying to describe you to you. <laughs> But you know what it is. It's yeah. that je ne sais quoi that all queens <laughs> must possess. <laughs> that sense of come your foe and je ne sais quoi. So um, has this been a lifelong ambition? Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't remember when I didn't want to be on stage. But yeah. I, was, I wasn't very good. You know, when I, I wanted desperately <laughs> to be a child star and, uh, you know, no one would exploit me. And I, I was, <laughs> and I was taking acting classes. I, you know, um, since I was very uh, young, but and and actually, I, I think the first class that I took at, at a place in Manhattan called the Neighborhood Playhouse, mm -hmm. and and uh, and I guess I was about twelve, and the teacher was a rather sort of affected grand dame, older actress, and the first <laughs> the first thing we learned the first day of acting class was how to walk downstairs. Uh, without looking down and wearing a long train. <laughs> I personally found that of great help throughout my career. And I'm, I'm terribly critical. Whenever I see a play and an actress has to come downstairs and they look down at their feet like a washerwoman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> let me um, ask you. So yes. I... Not to not to take it all back to me, but um, to relate to what you're saying. <laughs> to relate I think to what I should you're interview saying. you because I, you know, I find you absolutely fascinating. No, I think I think there I think we're fascinated with each other for the same reason because there's so I just see so much of the same thing that motivates me in my life. You know, I I wanted to ask you. So you you started writing roles for yourself um, that were drag roles, but they were female characters. Yes. It wasn't like you, Charles Bush, created a drag a, yeah, persona. I did, yes, I didn't have a. I I never had a specific drag persona because I I play a different lady in every play. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, but that is your drag. The play is your drag. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and. I wonder, my whole life I knew as a young person that the roles they were trying to get me to play, like only a few of them were right, you know, like Jack and Into the Woods, I'm like, this is this is getting closer, but you know. <laughs> but <laughs> Jack is, as Jacqueline. <laughs> <laughs> but it was when I started to find directors who were open-minded, to casting me in female roles or adapting female roles to be either gender non-binary or to be, you know, uh, reimagined as a male character or, or as a drag queen or whatever. Um, that's when I started to feel like, oh, it wasn't enough for me to just be acting. I, I'm meant to play these types of roles. Mm -hmm. yep. And I, I want to ask that, did you start writing for yourself to create those roles for yourself? 
Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Because see, I, you know, I'm, you know, quite a bit. I'm old enough to be your mother, uh, uh, <laughs> and, I, and I think of you in some ways as my trouble, <laughs> my complex troubled daughter. Uh, but uh, yeah, no. I, when I went to college, I went to Northwestern. I was a theater major, and uh, this is 1972 that I, mm. I arrived there. And this was before there was Torch Song Trilogy or Angels in America or anything where there were really where there were roles for gay men, let alone a, a guy playing a female part. Uh, you know, uh, there was the boys in the band, basically. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and I was never, never cast ever. And 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 I'm, I'm quite pragmatic, really. Mm-hmm. And so I, I could see when I wasn't cast, I, you know, I thought, well, I wouldn't cast. Ultimately, I think I would cast that guy. <laughs> also, he's just more suited for the part. And and then, um, and so I was just really a failure there. But I went. To, I saw since I'm from New York, I would come home for vacations, and that's when I saw Charles Ludlam, who mm-hmm. was this extraordinary playwright, director, actor who had a company called the Ridiculous Theatrical Company, and he had his own theater down here in the village. And when I saw him, you know, doing uh, a play called Eunuchs of the Forbidden City, and it was this mad Chinese epic, and I just felt like I had seen the future. And, mm. you know, and he had, in, in that play, uh, he had men playing female characters, and mm. for no other reason other than it was just they were really good at it. And, yeah. And so, yeah, and that inspired me. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I think that if I'm going to be in the theater, I'm just going to have to create my own roles. And and I'd always been writing, but I, I mm-hmm. somehow took me till I was you know, 19 to figure out that I should be writing the parts for, for, for me. And so then I, I started doing that right away and, and um, ne- never looked back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Do you want to know something? The story you just told about Charles Ludlam, I could tell about you the first time I saw Die, Mommy, Die. I mean, our our, our persona are very, um, very different, but I do think they draw from a similar well. I think we're both very fascinated with old Hollywood and certain... Um, feminine aesthetic from vintage (laughs) eras, you know? Um, But when I saw that you created like a character more than just like a persona you were putting on, but this woman had kids. She had a a whole life. She had a whole backstory. She had nuance. And just seeing that there were drag performers who were thinking – how far can drag go? You know, like how far can we take it into the direction of film and theater and performance? Yeah. And I was just, you know, it, it it told me that it was possible to take drag as far as you wanted to take it in any direction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing about drag is just that, I mean, it's just this, it's a, I don't know, what do you want to call it? A theatrical convention, whatever that's, mm. that it embraces such, just an endless variety of possibilities yeah. and when you see drag race you see you know all these people who are marvelous people but who come from completely different points of view and whose ambitions are completely different in a certain sense of what they want how they want to create and what whether it's through a persona or whether it's through a, um, ca- uh, other characters uh, or whether it's kind of clown drag or, or mm-hmm. naturalistic drag it's uh, it's you can't it's like like comedy you that it's like saying that uh, i don't know henny youngman is the same as uh i don't know wanda sykes you know what i mean it's yeah. 
it's just uh, there's endless possibilities as as much as your imagination can can take you but how was it when you started <laughs> Like, we are in a time where, I mean, it's not a perfect moment in history for drag queens. Yeah, people want to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> other than that, it's pretty modest. Yeah. But um, I do want to know, what was it like when you began writing these roles in New York? And what was the attitude towards Psycho Beach Party with you playing this femme fatale police detective. In the play, in the play I, actually, I actually played Lauren Ambrose's part. I played Chicklet. When we I, played- could, I, I, I was going to say, it was a li- I was like, I wonder why <laughs> Miss Bush herself isn't playing the starring role. Yeah, so I, I, really, I, it was, it was, I played uh, Chicklet, uh, the Gidget character. Yeah. And when the movie, you know, the movie would, was oh gosh the play was in 1987 and i don't know what year the movie was 2002 or something or i, I don't know what it was but whatever mm-hmm. it was i i was already in my 40s and <laughs> how, sty- so, how stylized a movie i think my days as a as a teen <laughs> actress were long past so you handed down the ingenue role yeah but then the, producer, <laughs> the director bob king he really wanted me in the film and mm-hmm. so uh the movie is quite different from the play, and Bob had the idea of, of adding in this whole thriller plot where there's a, an actual killer. The play is a much more sort of benign affair. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so I thought, okay, well, if there's a killer, then there should be a, a detective. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, oh, and that really is much more suited to my my general persona of sort of a Susan Hayward kind of lady. And so I thought, okay, so there'll be a a really tough, brilliant um, (laughs) woman police detective, Dr. Captain Monica Stark. And so so that fit me much better for, uh, uh, for film. So the play did not have the detective character. That was a character you wrote for the film for yourself. I love that. Um, The film is uh, fantastic and um, uh, co-stars a former guest of the Hijinx podcast, Miss Beth Broderick. Uh, She plays, yeah, she was was really wonderful. So what was the attitude towards the the live shows in the 80s? Okay, well, uh, one thing, (laughs) You know, some of the big battles had already been fought. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, Charles Ludlam uh, and, and Charles Pierce. We all, everybody's name is Charles. <laughs> I was going to say, is that but a prerequisite? <laughs> but they, they both uh, had broken through where the New York Times would review them. And, and, mm-hmm. and, that, was, uh, and that was a challenge for them when they were started out in the late 60s. Um, that, that wasn't... Uh, a, done deal so when i came along already there was going to be um coverage i mean it was it could be uh, patronizing and and you know it's some of the reviews i've gotten they sure couldn't get away with now with the name calling and and just Mm. you know sort of um, patronizing but uh but yeah but I, i was i was taken seriously really from the start but then the other other lucky break for me actually was is that i was in the right place at the right time that when i first started doing plays in new york in in uh playing female characters uh it was 19 i think 1984 and uh i i, I just went i went down to the i'd never i grew up in new york city but i'd never actually been to the way down the lower east side an area called alphabet city because really mm-hmm. only the deranged would go down there it was, <laughs> it was so it just was you know I've seen Rent. <laughs> yeah, look, that's the you know, thing about Rent. You know, when I finally saw Rent, and it, and I kind of lived Rent in a certain sense, and I and I was thinking, I don't know what they're all complaining about in that play. You know, I, I was doing office temp work, and I was earning my living. I didn't expect anybody to <laughs> just because I want to be an artist. I, you know, I worked as a receptionist in a zipper factory. 
<laughs> to pay the rent. I, so I, I kind of thought that was, I didn't quite buy that in that show, that, that, that all those people just expect because they were artists and that they had, you know, were owed something. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, I, mean, I, you know, I, I was a stripper and a whore. <laughs> I, I, You're my, a survivor. My friend, Carl, my, my friend Carl, who's much younger than I am, Carl Anderson, when I met him, he, you know, he was 24 and, and uh, he was doing wardrobe on a, sh a, sh a show of mine. And uh, one day he came over and this 24 year old kid and, and saying, I've, you know, he was upset that he, his job was to ring out the, the wet panties of these actresses and <laughs> wash them. He said, I've really paid my dues. And I, I said, listen, you haven't paid your dues till you've been a stripper and a whore. <laughs> you earned your rent on your back. And that's called paying your dues, girl. <laughs> I thought, I, you know, I just thought that that, that was sort of the Yoda-like wisdom <laughs> on, the, on the young. It sounds like, it definitely sounds like someone who grew up with um, um, a certain era of uh, <laughs> film and theater. Um, the, the martyr, the... <laughs> Thinking yeah, of Fontaine exactly. on the street selling her hair, then selling herself to pay for her cholera-ridden daughter. That's what one does in the theater. <laughs> but, but yeah, so anyway, the thing was, so so I went down to Lower East Side to see a friend of mine perform in this art gallery after-hours bar called the Limbo Lounge. And I just, I'd never been in that strange neighborhood. And I was just dazzled by Everything about it. I felt like I was in, you know, a, a Weimar Republic cabaret. Moulin <laughs> Rouge. I thought it, it just was, you know, divine. And and immediately I, I wanted to do a, a play there. And so I I wrote this little sketch about these lady vampires and called it Vampire <laughs> Lesbians of Sodom. And we put it on, you know, just my friends and I. We put it on there for $35, I think we spent. And, it, <laughs> and we were in the right place at the right time because... Like during this this six month period, basically, there was a whole lot of attention being given to this neighborhood where Madonna had emerged from, and um, Keith Haring, the painter, and and so, suddenly I was doing these plays and with these crazy titles like Vampire Lesbians of Sodom or <laughs> Theodora, She Bitch of Byzantium, and so all the People <laughs> Magazine would do did a story on the the crazy performance art scene in the East Village, and they would you know art my titles made good punchlines for these people's uh, articles. Of course, so we got all this free press. And <laughs> it just took off, and we were able to move Vampire Lesbians to a regular off Broadway theater um, within really you know eight eight months maybe, and uh, wow. and then that that was my really my big break and and from that from that point that opening night in july 1985 <laughs> that opening night on i could earn my living in, as an actor writer and oh wow that was the that was the dream you know of course not, not to be a star but to earn my living doing what i do because you know that is one of the great joys of life is to be able to do that yeah I don't know anything about New York outside of Brooklyn and Manhattan. I know nothing about Hartsdale, New York, where I have <laughs> in my notes, that's where you grew up. Yeah. What was life like before um, before life in the East Village? What was your home life like? Uh, what were your parents' reaction towards this success when you faced it? Well, you know, I... I First, uh, yeah, I lived in, in the suburb of New York City <laughs> called Hart, Hartsdale. And um, and I just was, and then there were a whole series of uh, deaths in my family. And my, my mother died mm. when I was seven. And uh, and so I, by the time I was 14, I was really kind of, you know, living in a strange, strange world. And I was <laughs> flunking out of school. And uh, my Mother had an older sister, my aunt Lillian, who was actually twelve years older than my mother, and she was a widow who lived in Manhattan. And rather like the plot of Auntie Mame, she, um, <laughs> she came in and took me to live with her in New York City. And 
and she's really saved my life. She absolutely did. And, and, and I gave her a very difficult time, particularly, particularly that first year where, where she was my teacher basically. And, and, um, just, we'd be sitting at the dining room table with all these books out that I had to study. And, and as soon as, um, I'd open the book, I'd fall fast asleep. <laughs> so my hand would go into the kitchen and she'd take cold compress and hold it to my forehead as she'd cram in, you know, these facts and, you know, photosynthesis <laughs> and all this shit. And, and um, her, her goal, ultimate goal was that I should get into college and, and that I'd be independent. And, um, uh, and so she, we worked really hard and, and she succeeded. And, um, Wow. So, so yeah, it was kind of, kind of an amazing thing, but um, and so I guess she's really the um, major uh, influence in my life, and and the title of my book, Leading Lady, in a certain sense, she's the leading lady of of the um, the book. Yeah, I was just talking to my aunt about how significant those, you know, that um, society our culture puts a lot of significance on certain roles you know like mother and father mm -hmm. and we have certain you know perceived notions of what an aunt or an uncle is <laughs> but um for me i was raised by my aunt very in, in in many ways you know i lived with my mom but my aunt was kind of like the person who was there for me from day one as like the person teaching me how to be who i ended up being you know our lives are so similar yeah i it's so funny hearing you talk and i'm like well that's just like me and that's just like me do you do you have any theories for what calls a queen to her calling, like hearing these, I, I think about these things all the time because, you know, um, we're from different generations, but there's so many similarities. Do you think it's a nature versus nurture thing? Do you think we were just born to be these fabulous grand doms or you a fabulous grand dom and me a foul mouth broad? <laughs> I kind of think maybe it's, it's, we're just destined to, to do that. I, <laughs> You know, I, the funny thing is, you know, in writing a book, you can start sort of seeing your life as more of a a whole story. And mm -hmm. you know, when I, I my aunt used to send me to these rather esoteric summer camps that catered <laughs> to, the, to the young boy with recherche tastes, you know, and where <laughs> there was really no no athletics or anything. I, I yeah, she yeah. made great choices for me. Anyway, this one, <laughs> this one summer camp she sent me to uh, in North Carolina. Uh, and it was all sort of uh, built on Grecian themes. <laughs> and anyway, the the uh, it was run by this fascinating woman who was a professor of classics at Columbia, Dr. Uh, uh, Vera Lachman, and she would direct one play each summer, and it would be a Shakespeare or a Moliere. And so the sum first summer I was there, I guess I was maybe ten, let's say ten, eleven, and she did this play by Moliere, the the bourgeois gentilhomme, and she cast me as the uh, sort of glamorous um, uh, uh, countess who all all the men are are in love with, and <laughs> and I I saw it as kind of Audrey Hepburn in, in uh, My Fair Lady, and I tried I they had all these kind of um, lace curtains, and I made a, <laughs> sort of a, I figured a, a gown. To wear, but I started. Mm -hmm. I was thinking. I wonder if that Dr. Lachman and her European kind of insight recognized the the feminine lady within this <laughs> ten year old and cast me in that in that part. You know, I mean, it was. Interesting. I I have to imagine people people recognize it, and it's uh -huh. this funny thing I've always thought about, like. Um, when it's someone else's kid and you recognize that <laughs> this kid's, you know, um, yeah. got certain <laughs> interests that might align them with. <laughs> yeah. Theatrical. You know, you want to like provide like an outlet. Um, I, I've had ballet teachers and, um, you know, drama teachers 
throughout my education who would, some would kind of teach me how I could kind of parlay what I'm interested in to characters that I was more likely to get cast as, you know? Right. <laughs> um, but, and only a few teachers ever bothered to try to get me to play straight. <laughs> like, that was a given. You're, that... you're lucky because you're from a, different, a later generation. You know, yeah. You know, yeah, in the um, early 70s, even a teacher who uh, was sensitive would, mm -hmm. just, he wouldn't. But I, I found my, at Northwestern, you know, I, I just was so frustrated. Like, what you know, it, I remember we had to get, we had to get up on stage in an acting class. Uh, we had to take, take, we were given a list of characters from famous plays and we had to pick a character and just get on stage by ourselves and kind of be the character without dialogue, bring props and just kind of see, you know, I don't know, the invented behavior of how that mm -hmm. would be. And, you know, I look at this list, you know, and, you know, I'm this gay teenager who had, you know, some sexual experiences already, at, in, you know, at 16. Now, I'm from New York City. Um, yeah. But anyway, I'm looking at this list, and I don't know, you know, who the fuck am I supposed to play in this list? So I pick Archie Rice from The Entertainer, and I'm supposed to, this gay teenager, I'm supposed to somehow be this, you know, middle-aged womanizer, what billion. <laughs> and, and I was like, put on a kimono and I was fiddling with makeup and you know, I was like Blanche Dubois, who I should have been playing. And then finally, actually in a Shakespeare class, I I'd kind of had enough. And uh, I decided just to do a, a, a monologue as um, Cleopatra from Antony and Cleopatra. Mm -hmm. and, and for the first time in an acting class, I actually, you know, had a little life in me. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and of course, that opened the floodgates. Next thing you know, uh, every boy was playing Beatrice or, <laughs> or Portia. You couldn't keep them down. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about your book, Leading Lady. Um, it recently came out. I have my. I actually. I think through a. I think through you and I talking directly and then our people talking directly. I have two copies of your book at my house. Oh my. Back. <laughs> so um, what inspired you? Obviously you've been writing for a while. Is this your first book or is no. this your first autobiography? Yes. Yes. No, I wrote, um, I wrote a novel uh, in the mid nineties that, uh, was very autobiographical called Horrors of Lost Atlantis. <laughs> and, and, and in that play, it was, it was about how we did vampire lesbians of Sodom and that and uh -huh. the play within that book was called Horrors of Lost Atlantis. And it, it was tricky though, uh, writing this memoir now, which I, where I'm telling the actual story of what, you know, happened back then and how we did how this play that we did in this bar, you know, mo moved off Broadway and, uh, and it was, difficult to to now really analyze you know what was i thinking what what was the the truth you know that story of that you know how i got my big break not only had i written it as a not as a novel but i'd also sort of whittled it down to cabaret banter in my act you know and i and i've told and i've told the story countless times you know on interviews or or just in in my living room and so to now go back and and actually really tell it was yeah. that that was hard that was really hard to to you know i had gotten it down to a series of one liners and and try to see you know you know and uh, what you know what, what was i really thinking back then and what was i you know and and yeah so so that that was almost the hardest part i think of writing this book which covers my whole life but that's central that episode. is that is very fascinating because from what I'm hearing is that this this moment in your life was extremely significant. Yeah. But since it was so significant, you know, it inspired work and you mined it. And, <laughs> and then, as you're saying, it kind of boiled down to a couple sentences. Um, and when you kind of process something down and you're able to kind of like, uh, you know, synthesize it down to a, a a a joke you tell or a story you tell that that you're you have muscle memorized you know yeah, well, i can't even imagine like going back over it 
however many years later and saying, okay, what actually, <laughs> what actually happened? How hard was that? What were the struggles? What were the ups and the downs? And it sounds like it was kind of all just um, very fortuitous and serendipitous, but, but this you know. To you. I mean, how many times now have you told how you got on Drag Race? I mean, yeah. Times. And someday you're going to want to write about it. And, <laughs> and it can't just be the, you know, the talking points that you've um, whittled it down to. Because, you know, it, it sounds like a Pandora's box because, I mean, <laughs> for the last 10 years, I've I've just been <laughs> processing, right. yeah. you know, um, it's 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 very funny because I am very appreciative for everything I've experienced. And I'm really, really happy um, being where I'm at now. But, you know, you, you you told that story and it sounds like right place, right time. It also sounds like you were passionate about your work and that um, was seen in your work because, you know, Having a snappy title is one thing, but you know people aren't going to go back to a show that's crap just because it's got a good title, you know. It ran in New York, you know, when we opened off Broadway, it then ran for five years. It's one of the, uh, I think it's one of the longest uh, running uh, non musicals in off Broadway history. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, people came so, over. Yeah. But I have to imagine that they're, you know. I, I refer to it a lot. The The experience of overnight success was not something that I fully understood while it was happening. You know, like I had thought my whole life I knew exactly what I wanted to do, and that was true, and I knew exactly how I wanted to do it, and that was true, and I knew like where I wanted it to take me. And once I started going on that path, I was like, oh, this is so much crazier. I really thought because I was passionate that it was going to just be easy for me because I knew how bad I wanted it. But the actual industry, the actual business is so crazy and involves so much like, um, you know, stress and heartache and rejection. Um I imagine going back and looking at some of those things is kind of like a Pandora's box situation where when you open it up and look at the good things, you kind of remember some of the hard stuff too. Well, your story though is, is I mean, the fact that your big break was on television. <laughs> really? I mean, the, I mean, that's, that's very different from doing an <laughs> off-Broadway play, which was a big deal for me, but to, to suddenly, you know, be on TV and uh, all those, you know, all that pressure must have been really quite difficult. I remember, you know, I worked with Rosie O'Donnell. She produced <laughs> a musical called Taboo that I, I wrote the book for uh, for the Broadway mm -hmm. version. And and she she it was interesting. She one time told me that um, that she went, you know, growing up, she you know she she thought that oh you know uh, when she became famous that all the voices in her head that told her that she was you know mm -hmm. unattractive or or you know lesbian or all the things that she she was uh, i don't know found difficult to, to deal with that she mm -hmm. thought that when she became famous all that would go away and she found that in, in fact when she became famous the voices became uh louder i thought yeah. that was a very interesting way of putting it but I, I i never experienced that because you know I, i'm almost not really in show business it's, it's a it's a kooky thing i i more i think about it that uh i i rather um i've kind of lifted myself out of show business and i've been so lucky to be able to put uh, i can always get a play produced you know mm. in a certain a certain way not on broadway but you know in the nonprofit world and there are theaters that that just regularly have me back, and and I work basically work with the same people, same actors, mm -hmm. uh, same director, um, and so it's it's about as non show business as you can do, and you know. <laughs> well, that said, I did see you do a cabaret evening in LA. Um, in L.A. some years back. I cannot remember the name of the venue right now, but Rockwell. Rockwell. <clears throat> Rockwell. Alaska, Willem, Kenny and I, Kenny's my best friend. We all went to see you. 
Also, also there that night was Martha Plimpton, <laughs> and who is a big fan of yours. She was on a show with my friend Noah Galvin. So Noah texted me and said, say hi to Martha while you're there. So that night I got to like see you perform, meet Martha Plimpton. It was a wonderful evening, but see, watching you perform your live cabaret show, it was just like... It was like, you know, all of the, I, I, I don't know how many people this resonates with, but my whole life, you've already mentioned it. Ask anyone in my life, I bring up the Weimar Republic cabaret scene probably like daily. <laughs> and when I saw you, it was like, um, obviously not Marlene Dietrich because you don't sing with a German accent. You're not a German expat, but there was this like, you know, just like time capsule effect of it. It just felt like a woman of that era of the 40s, 50s, 60s, like the most glamour, when when mature women were still celebrated for their talents, you know? Where it didn't, like, of course, you know, there was still rampant misogyny, but I felt like, I feel like there was a time where if you were a good singer, if you still had the passion, if you still had what it took to be a star, it didn't matter that you were 60-something years old, you know? <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I was thrilled I heard all of you, you, you gals were, were there. And, and I, <laughs> somebody, I guess, overheard you say something and it got back to me, and I thought it was really sweet that uh, somebody said, oh, you know, Jinx uh, said, what, what, if, if that's what it's like, to, you know, if that's, how, how did you put it? Uh, well, you know, if, if that's the kind of act I do at 60, I don't, I wouldn't mind. That is literally, but that is like, that has, I mean, I just saw in you everything that I've always also <laughs> loved. You know, I just saw our shared passions and it was so cool because at that point in my life, you know, I had, you know, I had my own career going, but I discovered you at probably like, what, like 14 years old? You know, I, I, I saw Die, Die Mommy Die. I can't remember when, uh, but it changed my life, you know? 2006, so you must have been very young. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that would have been the end of high school. No, I definitely saw it. Uh, I, I definitely saw it in college then. And that was a re that um, was my theater training. So, of course, it spoke to me at that time in my life. But I also, and I remember the first night we met in Provincetown, I made such an ass out of myself. It was such an incredible evening because it was you and I and Farla Jean Merman and Dina Martina and Coco Peru. I, I swear, like, everyone was there just like... Yeah, I think Bianca Del Rio. Bianca. Everyone was there all on one night, and it was like this fabulous Mount Rushmore of drag. It was, it was a <laughs> But and funny though, yeah, that one weekend in Provincetown, just like every famous drag performer <laughs> was there that weekend, and then we all had lunch the next day. That that was just fascinating. And I was trying to play it cool. Of course, I wanted to talk your ear off about Die, Mommy, Die, because that was the the movie that <laughs> like really like just rung a bell inside of me. But trying to play it a little bit cool. I don't know what I was thinking. I still drank back then. But I said something like, weren't you in Psycho Beach Party? And you said, in it, I wrote it. <laughs> and everyone just laughed. And I felt like such a fucking ass. <laughs> it, was, it was perfect. It was the perfect introduction. And then we all sat down and it was just... It was like a it was like a coven meeting. It was like a Black Sabbath. All the witches gathered together around the cauldron. It was incredible. <laughs> Charles I have um, some compulsory questions that okay. I ask 
every guest, and you are welcome to answer them however you want, but before I ask you them, this is another chance to plug anything you got going on. Your book, Leading Lady, is out in bookstores. Where uh, Do you have a website where people can know all the goings-ons? Yeah, uh, charlesbush.com. You know, That's you know, easy. It's so extensive. It's like you, you can't find the end. It's like finding the source of the Nile. Every <laughs> is the end of my website. It's going and going, going. Yeah, no. So I have this book, Leading Lady, uh, the memoir of a most unusual boy, and it's available <laughs> on Amazon. And uh, I think it, somebody told me I'm neck and neck with Barbara Streisand. I have a feeling. No, that can't be the first time in your life that's happened. <laughs> <laughs> with her, yeah, I'm divided. And um, yeah, and uh, so I saw this book. You can get it on Amazon and wherever fine books are sold. And then, uh, and then this my movie, The Six Real, which where I'm, I'm I act with um, so the, my friend Julie Halston, who's been my stage buddy for many years. Our first real movie together, and Margaret Show, and mm. Andre De Shields, and Patrick Page, and um, Tim Daly. It's a great cast, and it's a it's like a it's contemporary, but it's like a 1960s uh, caper movie where a bunch of eccentric people are all running around trying trying to get the same, you know, steal the same thing, and uh, <laughs> you know, get, we get dressed up in crazy disguises and we're running around the village, you know, and all sorts of hijinks and shenanigans. And so the movie um, is playing a one-week New York theatrical engagement starting on September 22nd at, at this fascinating new movie theater called the look cinema where i believe you can get a three-course meal while you're eating dinner <laughs> so anyway so i hope people come see it because then maybe you know it'll move to other cities and you know and and, and then i think it starts streaming right after that uh, you know wherever they stream things wonderful and i believe both um Psycho Beach Party and Die Mommy Die are on Amazon Video. I'm sure that's where I've watched. I've I've pulled them up in so many different ways. I used to have to go to the Hollywood Video <laughs> to to rent Die Mommy Die, <laughs> or I guess I was going to Scarecrow by then. Scarecrow in Portland, Oregon. Anyway, I had a DVD copy of it. <laughs> I still do. Remember I, when? Remember when things came in physical forms? <laughs> I, hey, I just I just bought a DVD um, of that the movie Resurrection with Ellen Burstyn that that from the I guess the eighties. You I, have a DVD player? Yeah, oh, I'm very old fashioned, honey. I, I basically haven't progressed since 1984. <laughs> Life is very difficult for me. <laughs> it's so I much know. harder to get tab these days. <laughs> It's really hard. Listen, I had a hard time just with this um, today. I I got so confused. I thought that our this we were getting together at eleven. Uh, so you eight. sat around for three hours thinking this jinx cunt thinks she can just I, I make did. me really wait. I, I thought she did. I, I was saying <laughs> horrible things about you. I really was. I was in this wild rage because oh. I, I thought you stood me up. You know. Well. I realize I'm sure I'm sure I'm going to have to deal with the fallout from that <laughs> mistake of mine. I, I don't read the fine print. Really, my fatal error in life. <laughs> Charles, um, are you ready for my first compulsory question? I'll try. All right. The first one is, who is your celebrity crush today? Oh, that was on the list you gave me. This is a, a trick question. What? <laughs> Who gave you the list? This Joseph. has always been my questions. Joseph. Okay. My oh, I see. Those other things are just conversation starters. Uh, Those are just to guide me in the conversation, but I you and okay. I need no help being guided in a conversation. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Dude. I can go four more hours with you. Uh, <laughs> Let's see. Uh, oh, celebrity crush. I, I guess so many. Um, um, oh, I, I just think Harry Styles is so cute. Yeah, I can't go wrong with Harry Styles. I like those <laughs> Peter Pans. You know, I really do. <laughs> I like a good Peter Pan with the big dick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're a milf. You're a cougar. I get. I get it. 
I get it. Another I similarity. I, but I didn't get those guys when I was 18. <laughs> I didn't get to know since I sort of am that person. No, there are pl- listen. There are plenty of transamorous cougar, uh, cougar chasers, <laughs> milf hunters out there. I don't know, Younger I- guys, they're way, they think way differently <laughs> these days. No one. But yeah, because no, when, when I was young, it, it was basically all kind of d- daddies were attracted. Yeah. But, you know, I was this kind of Peter Pan type. Yeah, I never could get the, you know, sort of the, like Leonard Whiting and Romeo and Juliet, you know, those, that's like my. my it's talk. kind of like when when a twink ages out of being a twink, they must decide their life path from that point on. Some decide to be muscle daddies, some decide to be bears, and then some go on a very special path where they become middle aged women. <laughs> Nobody's idea of a daddy. Maybe they're anti mame, but. Not, not. Daddy, yeah. <laughs> what's next one? <laughs> You're like, get on with this, Jake. Right. Next question is next. Next case. <laughs> next question is: Are you spiritual? Mm, uh, not. I guess not really. That's totally cool. Not particularly. No. <laughs> I, you know, I could come up and invent some kind of oh, in my own sort of way. I. I don't think, you know, what's, what's kind of funny is uh, a number of years ago, this very strange fellow came over mm-hmm. to my apartment who wanted to interview me because he was writing a book on um, ast- the astrological charts of famous drag queens. <laughs> and I had a limited appeal, you know, but, but he came over and I said, you know, I said, well, I have to tell you, you know, I'm just really not really kind of a woo-woo person and I don't really care about astrology or know anything about it and everything. And he looked around the r- living room and he said, and yet, you know, this room is filled with totems of <laughs> off evil spirits. I said, like, what are you talking about? I didn't realize just that in my living room, there were Balinese uh, masks and Chinese, <laughs> Chinese porcelain food dogs and crystals and pyramids. And I said, oh, it's just because I think they're pretty. But <laughs> my, my living room is the safest place in the universe. So if in, 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 in the event of world catastrophe, Jinx, Come on over. <laughs> you know, I think if you follow your intuition, you liked these things because they were pretty, and then they, you know, do have significance in the spiritual world. So who knows? Maybe you just have really good intuition. Yep. <laughs> um, my final question for you, this is the softball question, but it, I have a feeling it's going to be way more difficult for you. <laughs> What's your go-to karaoke song? Oh, uh, <laughs> I went to karaoke once. First time I went to Palm Springs, uh, and I was taken to a party, and I was already like you know maybe uh, you know fifty or something like that. But the party, everybody was so old. It was like oh, this elder, old, old gay party, and, and I, I suddenly thought, oh my god, I, I myself, and you know, in nineteen eighty four. You know, I was sitting on everybody's laps, and oh, don't you don't let your husband see him. <laughs> and, uh, I did something, I, you know, I was me young again at this party, mm-hmm. and uh, anyway, they had a karaoke machine, and I and I got up and I did one time <laughs> I ever song karaoke. But I don't know what it must have been some like you know song like I, I can't give you anything but love or something. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a fun? Do you have a favorite song you sing in your cabaret act? Well, um, actually, if there was a cabaret, if there was karaoke thing that I would mm-hmm. do, uh, really one of my favorite disco songs <laughs> from the 70s was I Love the Nightlife, I Love the Boogie. And uh, I find myself sometimes in the, in the supermarket, you, you know, if there's nobody you know around and mm-hmm. actually the supermarket in my neighborhood has just a wonderful you know whoever does the music it's, it's all like the greatest hits basically of the 70s they're playing all the hits i know from the 70s and so i i'm with my card and i'm looking around nobody's around and, and so i started start da- dancing down the, the aisle to i love the night action i want to live. <laughs> well if i get the chance i'm taking you out for karaoke and i will see this dream fulfilled miss bush <laughs> what's, what's your favorite song 
My favorite song to sing at karaoke, I like singing Stray Cat Strut by the Stray Cats. But if I want to show off, I always sing Creep by Radiohead because I'll sing it in the like in the octave that he sings it in. And then I'll sing it up the octave and no one's expecting it. And that's my show off song. (laughs) You win. (laughs) I win karaoke. Okay. (laughs) Charles, you are just such a fabulous person to know. You um, are an inspiration to me. And I hope that my listeners go out and look up your body of work and um, fall in love with you the way I am. My favorite thing about Die, Mommy, Die is that you were playing a grieving widow who just couldn't stop being a slut. And I just loved it. I was inspired for the rest of my life. (laughs) Not just as a drag performer, in my own life. So... So thank you for that. Um, have a wonderful rest of your day, and thank you for joining me, Charles Bush. I'm just crazy about you, and and thank you for giving me such a beautiful quote in the back of my book. That was awesome. oh, twas a pleasure. <laughs> and thank you all so much for listening to Hi Jinx here on the Forever Dog and Moguls of Media Network. My name is Jinx Monsoon, and we have new episodes every Wednesday, so make sure to search for Hi Jinx on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. You can follow me at the Jinx on Instagram or at Jinx Monsoon everywhere else, and I'll see you next Wednesday for some more Hi Jinx! M. Oh. M. Mom! To listen to Hi Jinx one day early and ad free, sign up for Mom Plus at mompodcasts.plus. Hi Jinx is produced by Moguls of Media, aka Mom, hosted by me, Jinx Monsoon, and produced by Joseph Shepard. Editing and sound design by Will Pitts, executive produced by Willem Belli, Alaska Thunderfuck, Big Dipper, and Joe Cilio.